All right, we are in a series called Luke, where we're going through the book of Luke as we study the life of Jesus. And we're in part 12, if you can believe it. And we're just getting started. And so right now we're going into Luke chapter 8, but I want to set the context for you. Uh, Jesus has been ministering. Well, Luke's writing, and remember there are four accounts of Jesus' life, four histories Uh, books that were written about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were disciples. They were eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus did in his ministry. And then Mark was a super close, uh, closely connected to Peter. And we don't know how much of Jesus's ministry Mark actually saw, but probably some of it. Luke is the only Greek writer in the New Testament that's not Jewish. And he didn't meet Jesus. He doesn't come on the scene until after Jesus has died. But all the major players besides Jesus are still alive. And he goes around collecting eyewitness accounts from them and puts them in an orderly book. And that is the book of... Wow, that was soft. You weren't ready, right? So we're studying the book of... Much better. You know, I, I noticed this because... Last time, last Sunday, Zach was here, and I was here too. And while Zach was preaching, he asked a question. He was preaching along, about halfway through his message, he referred back to when Jesus preached his first message in the synagogue at Nazareth. And then he said, right, you guys remember this, right? Yeah, that's how the response was, something like that. It was just kind of very disappointing. So remember, there was a time when Jesus preached in his own city. Remember I told you it only lasted 4.5 seconds. Remember? I wish you had answered that way when Jesus, when Zach answered, okay, yeah, whatever, we're moving on. So, but we need to focus in here so we understand how the life of Jesus all, all plays out. So now here's where we're at. We're going into chapter eight. Jesus is continuing his ministry and he has people following him. Mainly, he's called his 12 disciples, but maybe a better, more specific word would be his 12 apostles because other people following Jesus were also referred to in scripture as disciples, men and women. But the 12 men were the apostles, the the special 12. So he's with them most of the time. But other times it's them and then a larger crowd. And that's kind of the situation in the text that we're in today. And those other followers of Jesus also included men and also women. And as Luke opens chapter 8, he actually names three of his women followers. And and other women are named at different times. But here, three of them are are listed. And that's in Luke 8, beginning of verse 1. So soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. And then he starts naming them. He he names three. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others 
who are contributing to their support out of their private means. So this is just kind of setting the context here. Luke throws out some names of some key uh, disciples, ladies who were following Jesus and helping support his ministry. And the interesting thing here is Jesus didn't need their support because remember, God provided for the nation of Israel for 40 years in a desert wasteland. But Jesus allowed this to happen. And in doing that, what he allowed was for these ladies and others to be partnering with Jesus in his ministry. Because he allowed that, they got to partner with Jesus in his ministry. And it's the same way today. But at this point in history, as we go into Luke chapter 8, there is a shift in Jesus' ministry. He's become more and more popular. Bigger and bigger crowds have been coming out to see him. And then, but in these crowds, increasingly, are people who aren't really wanting to follow Jesus. So you have a lot of people who they're just there to kind of see what's going on. This is a curious thing. They've heard about him. He's becoming famous. Let's check it out. You have other people that are really dialed in. They believe he's the Messiah, what he's saying, and they practice that. They, put, they, they act on what he says. But then he even had people who didn't like him who are going there and listening to his teaching just so they can find fault with him and accuse him, right? We gotta work on our responses. Yeah, so some, not everybody that, were, that was where Jesus was teaching as the crowds were there, not all of them really wanted to follow him. Some of them were there for, for other reasons. So because of that, there's a shift in Jesus's ministry and he starts using parables more often. And we're gonna get to the why of that in a little bit. So, and right now, one of his main parables was called the parable of the sower, also known as the parable of the soils. And that starts in verse four, and that's where we're at. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. Now, parable is a transliteration of two Greek words that are jammed together. Para, where we get parallel, which means alongside. And then balo, where in Greek class, you remember kind of throwing a ball. Balo, which means to throw. So alongside to cast, alongside to throw. And so what a parable is, is when you're teaching a truth, and then to make it more understandable, you throw alongside that truth you're teaching a simple story that helps people understand the truth. That's what a parable is. So in short, a parable is a simple story that helps explain profound truth. Now, most parables, as a rule of thumb, only have one key point. The whole point of the story is just to illustrate one main point. And sometimes there's a danger of looking at, at these stories that are meant to only convey one thing and, and people can pick it apart and try to apply all different stuff. But this parable that he's gonna tell here, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, actually has a few points to it. It's a little more involved than most parables and he sort of explains why he does the whole thing. So that's, that's what we're getting to. So here's 
the simple story that's teaching a profound truth, beginning in verse five. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and he's gonna point out there's four different soils here. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he'd call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when he says that, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not saying, hey, if you've got physical ears, listen to what I'm saying. What he's saying is, if you hear me, heed what I'm saying. If you hear what I'm saying, put it into practice. That's what he means by that. But as we get into that story with these four different kind, types of ground, you know, and, and the seed and all this stuff, sometimes, have you ever wondered when you're reading what Jesus said, have you ever wondered, why does Jesus even use parables? You ever wonder that? Thank you very much. We have one person, two counting me, who have wondered, why even use parables? What's the deal? Well, Jesus is gonna answer that question. He's gonna let us know. And so basically, if you want kind of a structure of this, this is just a story that I'm telling you, the story of the actual events, what happened in the first century, and what Jesus said. And so you can follow with, with how it went, the history, or if you want to structure it in your mind, the structure is this. Jesus is going to answer the why, who, and what of parables, or this parable. The why, the who, the what. All right, So you can structure it that way too. So why did Jesus use parables? And the reason we ask that is because sometimes a parable can be hard to understand. And we don't always make the connection with what's going on. And so... Actually, we know from the other writers, because Matthew and Mark, Matthew and I witness, and Mark maybe, who were there, we know that there were several questions being asked to Jesus, but they all fell into two categories. One question was, what does this mean? What does this story mean? And the other thing they're asking is, why are you talking in parables? All right, so Jesus is answering the question, why are you talking in parables, even though Luke's not even mentioning that one, but before... Jesus gets to the other one. He answers that. Verse 9. Why parables? His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, but he's not asking, he's not yet answering what it meant. He's answering why. And he said, to you, it has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So we'll stop there for a minute. He's saying, for you guys, and he's not it's not just the 12 there, remember, it's some other followers, men and women, who are followers of Jesus. He says, to you, it's for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear mysteries, what is that? Well, he's talking to a Jewish audience, and primarily what the mystery is, is what's happening right now. And here's the context. Remember, the Jewish people for hundreds of years have been waiting for the Messiah. And Daniel, among others, told them that when, 
when the Messiah came, that it would be a huge apocalyptic event. I mean, it would be huge and everybody would know it. And so that's what they're waiting for. And not only that, but that he would rule and you know, conquer the enemies and rule his kingdom and everything would be different. The mystery is what they didn't see and what's being revealed by Jesus now is before his, the Messiah's coming as an apocalyptic kind of an event, before that, the Messiah comes quietly, humbly, as a servant and brings the gospel and he dies for our sins. And so that was a mystery to most people that were reading the Old Testament. They would read things that would sort of like sound like he's a humble servant, but he's gonna conquer, and they didn't really make sense. They focused on the second. They didn't really understand the first. That's what Jesus is talking about. Basically, the gospel were the church age. So he says to them, to you has been granted know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest, not to you, to the other people, but to the rest, it is in parables so that Seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In the NASB that I use, this is in, in some versions they do this. When it's all caps like that, besides the Lord's name, God, Yahweh. But any other time you see all caps, it's a quote from the Old Testament. You see all caps in the New Testament, it's a quote of the Old Testament. And this quote is from Isaiah chapter 6. So he's saying... Here's why I'm telling parables. It's so you guys can get the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but other people won't. Okay, and that sounds, so what, what's God saying? He doesn't want some people to understand? Nope, that's not what he's saying. He's quoting an Isaiah passage. This comes from Isaiah 6. If you've ever read Isaiah, you, you'll probably remember this. It's huge. It's probably the most famous chapter in Isaiah 6. Isaiah, who's a prophet of God in in Judea, right before the time of Babylon conquering them and then going into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, right before that, which is a judgment against the people, judgment's coming, and Isaiah has this vision. And in the vision, he sees God sitting on a throne, and there's smoke, and he's high and exalted and lifted up, and he's there among them looking at all this stuff. There's angels everywhere, and all this is happening. And then God says, who shall I send with, with the message to people? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so then God says to Isaiah, okay, go tell these people, here's your message. Keep hearing, but don't listen. Keep, keep seeing, but don't understand. You know, which is, it's like, what? You know, so not a real fruitful ministry. God's telling him, hey, you're going to preach, but people aren't going to do what you say. You're going to preach, but people aren't going to believe you. Why? Because they've been in disbelief. Isaiah's already had a lot of ministry, and, and he's doing this, and some of the people are just not following God. That's why God's bringing this impending judgment that is being foretold them that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years by Babylon, and so that all happens. But the whole point is, why? Now back to this. You get the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the rest, it's in parables, and then he quotes Isaiah. And what he's doing there is he's saying, these people who have heard the message, but they're rejecting it, 
I'm speaking in parables which will further keep them from understanding what God's doing since they've already rejected me. But for you, a parable is gonna be a story that's gonna help enlighten, help you understand God's truth. And so that's basically what he's saying. So if they've previously rejected Christ or they've been hanging around, but they're not hanging around because they wanna follow him, it's just because they're a novelty or they wanna keep their options open or whatever the case, he's saying, hey, they're gonna start not being able to understand because they've rejected. So a parable is used in two ways. It's used to reveal truth, but it's also used to conceal truth, but it's only used to conceal truth to people who have already rejected some of the truth that they've already gotten. Does that make sense? Yes. That was pretty good. All right, you're with me. I'm feeling good about that. So, here, so Jesus is saying that, hey, parables give insight for followers, insight to spiritual truth. But non-believers who have rejected Christ end up with a story that they don't really understand what God's doing, that, that they understand the illustration. So he's saying he used parables, and for some with open hearts, their tr the truth, spiritual truth that he's teaching will be richer and deeper, but for others with closed or hard hearts, they're not gonna get it. They're just not gonna understand what the parable means. All right, so that's the why of parables. Why parables? Because now with increasing opposition, He's gonna start telling people what God's up to with the kingdom and they're not gonna get it. The people are in opposition, but the people who want to follow and have their hearts open will get it. All right, so that's the why. The next question Jesus is gonna answer is the who. Because they all understand, hey, when Jesus tells a story like this, he's not teaching us how to be farmers, right? There's some spiritual connection, you know, that he's trying to come out. It's not, it's not an agricultural lesson here. This is a spiritual lesson. And they also get that, okay, if this is spiritual, then Jesus, some of these parts of this story is gonna relate to people. And so the main question is, who is Jesus talking about? Why parables? Because they conceal and reveal. Who is Jesus talking about? Jesus is gonna explain the parable as a metaphor. Here's what he says in verse 11. So now Jesus is explaining what he meant. He doesn't always do this, but here we get the explanation. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So the seed is the word of God, or we could say the seed is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And the sower is whoever's throwing out that word, whoever's, whoever's spreading the word or spreading the gospel. And then he continues in verse 12. And then he starts breaking down the four different types of ground and who they represent. Notice the first word. Those, he's relating this to people. Those beside the road are those who've heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. 
The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So that's how he's explaining the parable. Now, so there's four different soils that the gospel is cast into, and these soils really represent hearts. The hard ground are those with hard hearts. Some people are already, because of what's happened or because of the past or because their exposure to Christianity or their exposure to somebody who said they were a Christian, whatever the case, they have hard hearts. And they, you can tell them or talk to them about spiritual truth and they don't want to hear it and they don't really care. Uh, it's just not for them. And they can hear it over and over and over. They can hear the gospel. Jesus loves them, died for them, and they never really receive it. There's no aha moment. And, and it basically comes down to sometimes they just don't want it to be true. They don't want to believe because of the implications that brings into their life. Maybe you've run into people like this, like I have, where you want to share the gospel. You want to share the good news, which is what gospel means. You want to share the good news that Jesus loves them, died for them, so they could be forgiven of their sins. And when people find out or they, they start understanding, oh, you're a Christian, you're a Jesus follower, then they start, when you talk to people, they ask good questions. But some people, when they find out that you're a believer, they ask questions, and they're good questions, but they'll ask a question that they think is a stumper. Anybody talk to somebody about God, and then they throw out this standard question, and they just assume that there's no way you can answer it. They think it's a stumper, but it's really not a stumper. Most questions aren't. There really is a good answer for that. And then as you start telling them the good answer, before they even hear the answer, they throw out another question that they think is a stumper. Has that ever happened to anybody? What's happening there is, what they're revealing is, they don't really want to hear the answer. When they see that you have an answer and you start answering them, then they interrupt you and they, answer, they ask another question that they think you can't answer, even though you can answer that one too. But what's happening is, they're not looking for truth, they're not looking for answers, they're just looking for a way to justify their non-belief. They're, they're, they're really not looking for truth. They're, rather than look for answers, they're looking for excuses. They ask a question that they think can't be answered and your inability to answer that gives them an excuse to not believe, which is what they want to do anyway. That happens all the time. Hard hearts. Now, non-believers that typically show up here, like in this room, there will be non-believers. Most of us are believers and we're glad everyone's here. But the non-believers that are typically here are more open and they're genuinely seeking truth. They're trying to figure out what is true and we're trying to help them understand that because they're looking for truth, not excuses. So anytime the word is spoken or specifically 
Anytime we talk about this good news, what Christ has done for us, this main message of the entire Bible, there is a spiritual battle happening. When you start talking to your friend about God, there's a, there's a behind-the-scenes spiritual battle happening. We don't have to get all focused on that. We just need to be aware that that's happening. And Satan loves to use hard hearts to reject God's word. Happens all the time. So the second group here is the rocky ground. And I kind of describe that as those with shallow hearts. That's where, and everybody in the first century would get this. You know, back then you didn't plow your field and, and then spread seeds. You just threw seed. But you'd do that and usually they'd throw the seed and then plow. But, you know, some of it, there's a lot of limestone in, in Israel. And so a lot of times just right under a few few inches of soil, there's like limestone bedrock, and then nothing grows well there. It sprouts, but it can't grow. And the best way I can illustrate that at my house is we have a septic tank out back with only, you know, about this much ground on top of it. Well, the grass will grow there, but if it gets dry a little bit, all of a sudden there's an outline of dead grass where that's not growing. Why? Shallow ground, you know, same thing. So they all got that. And so the this rocky soil or shallow hearts, people, they, they look like they receive it. They seem to sprout up, but then they fall away from God. And the other writers, Mark and Matthew, really describe this a little better. They're saying when hardship comes or persecution comes. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, they look like they're receiving but because hard times come or problems come or issues come or somebody mocks them for believing or they tell somebody they're going to church or somebody makes fun of them or they're persecuted in any way and we don't have a lot of that in our country, but it's coming. You know, they're persecuted. Well, then they're like, hey, I didn't sign up for this and they're out and because it never really took root. It was shallow and they, they liked it for a while, but oh, there's some sort of a price to pay. No thanks, I'm out of here. The third group, is the thorny ground. And this may describe more people in our culture. And that's those with divided hearts. They hear the truth of the gospel. They like it. They think, oh, this, this kind of makes sense. And I could go with this. But their life is so packed full of other things. Uh, you know, we're, we're chasing careers. We're taking care of family. We're, we're trying to get the things that we want in life, our house, our car, you know, all this stuff. And and the pursuit of all these other things in life keeps us from really drilling down on the most important thing in our life. And my fear is that a lot of times we're teaching our kids to react to the gospel this way. Because we get that, you know, we have this FOMO, fear of missing out in our culture, especially for our children. We have our children in everything, all the time. Oh, do this, do that, do this. And it's just wearing them out, but it also sort of dilutes the importance of God and their life. And we need to make sure that that never happens. And we're sometimes also teaching them that this is more, you know, first thing that goes is Wednesday night. Oh, we're busy. We can't come to church. And then now more and more, it starts affecting on Sundays. Same thing. And, and without realizing it, we're sort of subtly teaching our kids that all these other things are more important than church. I remember just last year, um, I don't know if I should even tell this story, but uh, my grandson was in some sporting event, you know, baseball or whatever, and, 
And then we were talking to people and they, they made it to the finals where they were going to have like a, a playoff, you know, for the championship. And it was on Sunday morning. And so they're all excited, talking to us. And somebody from our church is like, yeah, isn't this great? We're going to have this game and it's on Sunday. It's next Sunday morning. You know, and my son's there going, yeah, well, we won't be there. Well, why, why not? This is a person in our, in our church going, why not? Well, because we have church. He's a pastor. And he's like, well, because we have church. You know, and, and if I wasn't a pastor, we still wouldn't be there. You know, it's like we don't even see it. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, anything can preempt God in our life. And it doesn't even show up on our radar. That's this, thorny ground. We have divided hearts. We're trying to pursue everything. And then the last is the good ground. And the good ground, Jesus says, are those with honest and good hearts, receptive hearts. They're open and they receive it. And by the way, this is the only type of ground that produces fruit. And this is the only type of ground who are genuine believers because genuine believers produce fruit. The acid test of Christianity is whether you produce fruit in your life. That's what Jesus is saying right here. The acid test of Christianity is, has your life changed? Are you following God? Now, we don't do that perfectly, and sometimes we can get hung up with that. Oh, man, you know, I just did this thing, or I just had this thought yesterday that, you know, was just terrible. How can I be a believer? Hey, the answer to that is, yeah, we're not perfect. We get it. We admit that to God. We repent of it. God, help me not do this. Let me change some things up. And then we move on. Good ground. Good ground is what he's talking about. Jesus says the good soil, he describes them as people who have heard it, heard the gospel, hold to it fast. They, the gospel is not for when you first became a believer. The gospel is for every day of your life. Hold to it fast and bear fruit. And so all of this is Jesus confronting the crowds just like it con Jesus confronts us today through this parable. Are we really believers? Are we following Christ? It forces us to analyze how we respond to God and whether there's any fruit in our life. So that's the four soils, that's, that's the who of who they are. And so he explains the parable in terms of who. Why parables he talked about? Who's he talking about? Four different groups of people, he just explained all that. But now the next thing I want us to understand is, what's the main point? So okay, there's a lot of truth there that we just learned, there's four soils, different ways we can respond to God. What's the point of all that? Luke then shares another parable. Jesus is right there, and he tells another smaller parable to cap off the previous parable that will help explain what the whole point of it is. And we see that in verse 16. This sums up the parable of the soils. Next, Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. 
So, Jesus says, he's wrapping this up. So take care how you listen. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whomever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Sounds kind of scary, right? What's the point? What's the point of the parable? Take care how you listen. What's the point of the parable? Be careful the way you hear. Because hearing truth can be dangerous. Because then we make a decision to follow it or reject it. And as we reject it, God is teaching us through this that our hearts will become more and more hardened. And there's also an implication here that if we truly have received it, we will share it with others. It's like a light in a little lamp. These are just one flame, you know, little oil lamps. You don't cover it over. You don't put it under a bed. You set it up so it lights up the house. That's a picture of our lives. And so that's the parable. That's the why parables, the who's Jesus talking about, and what's the whole point. But there's one more thing I want to add, and it's the next thing that Luke records. Now, separate event. Jesus is somewhere else. But Luke attaches this next historical event that happened in the life of Jesus right in this position because I think it's saying, well, how important is it? And I think he's answering that question. So different scene. Luke picks it up. Here's what he says. And so the situation here is Jesus is somewhere else. He's actually in a town. He's, or we, what we know is he's in a building. He's in a room of a house, probably their front room. He's inside, and his mother is, and his brothers are trying to get to him. It goes like this. And his, so talking about Jesus. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answers and said to them, so he's saying this to the crowd that's in the room with him. My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Okay, this little story, this, this event in Jesus's life, if you've been raised Catholic, this can kind of blow your mind a little bit. Because first of all, Jesus's mother and his brothers are here. So Jesus is in, in a house. It's all packed out, even outside, standing room only. Mary and her other sons show up to see Jesus. Well, if you've been raised Catholic, you've been taught that Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, true, but that she was a virgin for the rest of her life, not true. The Bible teaches us that after Mary had Jesus, she was betrothed to Joseph, impregnated by the Holy Spirit, has Jesus after he's born, that Mary and Joseph go on to have normal marital relationships with each other, and they have other kids. There's actually four brothers that are named in Scripture in Matthew 13, 55, which is um, James, who wrote the book of James, uh, Joseph, named after his dad, 
Simon, not Simon Peter, but a different Simon, common name. And then the last one was Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, and not the other disciple named Judas, Judas son of Alphaeus, different Judas. So those are four, and, and, we don't, and there were also sisters, we, we don't have their names, but they're mentioned a few times in scripture. So the first thing is we realize is Mary had other children, and, and then Jesus' brothers are there. Now, the way, if you want a side note, anybody want a little rabbit trail here? Okay, if you want the rabbit trail. What, what they'll say, like what Catholics will say, well, this, this word, brothers, Adelphos, that is really a word that in some cases can be broadly used to mean family or cousins. But the problem with that is not in this context, that's clearly not the case. And to top it off, because they would say, so these weren't actually Jesus's brothers, they were Jesus's cousins. The problem with that is there's a Greek word for cousins that's very specific that surely the writers, because this isn't recorded just once, would have used if that was the case. Not used. The other thing is, if Jesus had older, you know, they would say, well, what this is, are these are Joseph's children that he had before he married Mary, and so, but he died and Jesus died, so Mary still got these kids that were all older than Jesus, but weren't actually Mary's biological children. The problem with that is there's no hint of this in all of the Bible. For example, we have the whole narrative of Joseph and Mary leaving Nazareth to come down to register for the census in Bethlehem, and there's the three of them, and there's no mention of any other children with them, right? In the Bible? Okay, yeah, I had to clarify. And then, so not only that, then after that event, if, if you'll remember your history, what happened next is Herod, the wise men come, Herod realizes, oh, they say the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, so he slaughters kids. But Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled to Egypt. All right, well, if they fled to Egypt, there's no mention of any other children going with them, or even the story when Jesus is in the temple and he's left by his parents when he's 12. You know, there's, there's no mention that there's some other siblings that could have kept an eye on Jesus or anything like that. You know, there is no hint of that in all of scripture. All right, back off the rabbit trail. All right. So that's one implication. Mary was not a virgin all her life. And then the, and Jesus had brothers and sisters. And the second implication is that you read this, it kind of blows your mind. Because basically Jesus is saying, hey, family, I recognize family and family's important, but what I value more than my biological family or my you know, earthly family is my spiritual family. My mother and my brothers, he's saying truly are not Mary and my brothers out there that can't get in the room, they're really all of you that are in the room. They're those of you who believe. He says, are those who hear the word of God and do it. So how important is listening carefully? Well, that decides whether we're in God's family or not. You know, people in our culture say, well, we're all God's children. And in the creative sense, that's true. 
But what Jesus is teaching us is when we respond to the gospel, that we, are, we actually enter in to God's family. I remember this hit me two different times in my life when I was a young believer. Right after I became a Christian, I, I, and I'm sure I was taught, I don't remember the teaching, I just remember knowing it, you know, that I remember, okay, the, the way that God's referred to the most in the New Testament is what word? Father. And so it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I have a dad that God gave me, and I'm thankful for most of the time. And, you know, so that. But then I always remember, I have another father, a heavenly father who's perfect and calls me his child. That blew my mind. I remember that. I remember praying to my heavenly father about my earthly father when I was, in, you know, this would have been like junior high age. And then later, when I was young in high school, and I was in a different state, in a different church in Colorado. And I remember for my first few years, I didn't really know anybody. I came to a church, but you know, I was kind of new, didn't know very many people. And for a while, my habit was, there was a, it was about this big, it seated about 300 people, but then they had a balcony, but nobody ever sat up there. But I'd always kind of slip up into the balcony and sit by myself. And I wasn't like sitting up there going, oh, poor me, I'm all by myself, I don't have any friends. It was just the opposite. I'm like, here I am, God, and I'm in your house with your people, and you're my father, and then I'd look down on the congregation, you know, and all these people are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That hit, and then I'm like, what should I be doing for these people? What should I be doing for my spiritual family? How are we gonna be? You know, what's gonna help us? That was my mindset. It blew me away. The point is this, no matter who you are, if you have come to Christ in faith, you may feel like an outsider or nobody in my family is a believer or whatever your situation, you are in the family of God. You belong in the house of God like we were singing. But there's an implication here. He's saying, those who hear the word of God, it's not just hearing and do it. Do it is take action. Hey, you've heard the gospel? Put your faith in Jesus, repent, reorient your life to him. That's the do it. It's not things, we don't earn our salvation, but once we've put our faith and we've repented, reoriented our thinking about Jesus, then we will bear fruit in our life if we're truly a believer. And we will want to share the message that we've received with other people. Let's stand together. We're pray. We're gonna come out, our team's gonna come out and sing a song. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and for those of us who are believers, Lord, help us to experience the closeness that you offer to us, that we belong to your family, that you're our father, not just father, our daddy, Abba, father. Lord, help us to live that way. And Father, for our friends, our neighbors, people from our community that year that, that aren't believers yet, Lord, we ask that they would continue, help them continue to seek truth, draw them to yourself, Lord, and help them to do what we've done, that we, we would realize our sin, we would realize your love, and we would run to the Father in Christ's name.